Alternative practice number two, honoring lived experience. We begin this section with a quote by author Bell Hooks from her book, Teaching to Transgress. Quote, Catherine McKinnon reminds us that we know things with our lives and we live that knowledge beyond what any theory has yet theorized. Making this theory is the challenge before us. For in its production lies the hope of our liberation. In its production lies the possibility of naming all our pain, of making all our hurt go away. End quote. In this module, we dive deeper into the concept of lived experience. The term lived experience has entered the mainstream lexicon in recent years. It's in job descriptions. It's in the comment section of social media threads, and folks in power are predictably sprinkling it into speeches, campaigns, and content creation. This is both encouraging and caution-inducing. It's encouraging because it has the potential to open us up to a form of embodied knowledge that we've ignored for so long. And it is caution-inducing because this, too, can be co-opted and wielded to uphold the dominant systems. Giving lived experience the value and weight it deserves requires an understanding of what separates it from quote-unquote theory or other forms of knowledge. To help clarify the distinction, I've curated two quotes from two people whose own lived experiences place them in a more informed place than I to speak on it. The first is a quote from author and professor Bell Hooks from her book, Teaching to Transgress. She says, Years ago, I was thankful to discover the phrase, the authority of experience, in feminist writing, because it gave me a name for what I brought to feminist classrooms that I thought was not present, but believed was valuable. As an undergraduate in feminist classrooms where a woman's experience was universalized, I knew from my experience as a Black female that Black women's reality was being excluded. I spoke from that knowledge. There was no body of theory to invoke that would substantiate this truth claim. No one really wanted to hear about the deconstruction of women as a category of analysis then. Insisting on the value of my experience was crucial to gaining a hearing. Now, I am troubled by the term authority of experience, acutely aware of the way it is used to silence and exclude. Yet, I want to have a phrase that affirms the specialness of those ways of knowing rooted in experience. I know that experience can be a way to know and can inform how we know what we know. Though opposed to any essentialist practice that constructs identity in a monolithic, exclusionary way, I do not want to relinquish the power of experience as a standpoint on which to base analysis or formulate theory. For example, I am disturbed when all the courses taught on black history or literature at some colleges and universities are taught only by white people. Not because I think they cannot know these realities, but that they know them differently. Truthfully, if I had been given the opportunity to study African-American critical thought from a progressive black professor instead of the progressive white woman with whom I studied as a first-year student, I would have chosen the black person. Although I learned a great deal from this white woman professor, I sincerely believe that I would have learned even more from a progressive black professor 
because this individual would have brought to the class that unique mixture of experiential and analytical ways of knowing, that is, a privileged standpoint. It cannot be acquired through books or even distance observation and study of a particular reality. To me, this privileged standpoint does not emerge from the authority of experience, but rather from the passion of experience, the passion of remembrance. Often, experience enters the classroom from the location of memory. Usually, narratives of experience are told retrospectively. In this testimony of Guatemalan peasant and activist Rigoberta Menchu, I hear the passion of remembrance in her words. Quote, My mother used to say that through her life, through her living testimony, she tried to tell women that they too had to participate, so that when the repression comes, and with it a lot of suffering, it's not just the men who suffer. Women must join the struggle in their own way. My mother's words told them that any evolution, any change in which women had not participated, would not be change, and there would be no victory. She was as clear about this as if she were a woman with all sorts of theories and a lot of practice. End quote. I know that I can take this knowledge and transmit the message of her words. Their meaning could be easily conveyed. What would be lost in the transmission is the spirit that orders those words, that testifies that, behind them, underneath, everywhere, there is a lived reality. When I use the phrase, passion of experience, it encompasses many feelings, but particularly, suffering. For there is a particular knowledge that comes with suffering. It is a way of knowing that is often expressed through the body, what it knows, what has been deeply inscribed on it through experience. This complexity of experience can rarely be voiced and named from a distance. It is a privileged location, even as it is not the only or even always the most important location from which one can know. In the classroom, I share as much as possible the need for critical thinkers to engage multiple locations, to address diverse standpoints, to allow us to gather knowledge fully and inclusively. Sometimes, I tell students, it's like a recipe. I tell them to imagine we are baking bread that needs flour, and we have all the other ingredients but no flour. Suddenly, the flour becomes most important, even though it alone will not do. This is a way to think about experience in the classroom. End quote. Several things stood out to me from this analysis by Bell Hooks. Firstly, I wanted to underscore her observation and regret that the term authority of experience, which substantiated her unique voice and perspective as a black woman when she first encountered it in feminist writing, had since been used to silence and exclude. This is an example of how concepts and vocabulary from radical movements are co-opted in service of upholding the status quo. Similar to the ethos of quote-unquote all lives matter in response to Black Lives Matter, the phrase authority of experience, which was meant to give voice and legitimacy to those whose experiences have been historically undervalued, has now been weaponized to say that everyone has lived experiences, so if you get to speak about yours, then I can speak about mine. What's worse is that this argument often devolves into either-or thinking where historically privileged groups can and have said to their historically marginalized counterparts, 
According to my lived experience, your lived experience can't be true. I also appreciate the ways in which Bell Hooks offers the passion of experience as an alternative and less hierarchical way of talking about what she originally references as the authority of experience. The term authority of experience implies experience that affords someone power over others. In other words, the vocabulary itself reinforces the systems we are trying to dismantle. Passion of experience, on the other hand, implies an expertise that comes from within, knowledge that is more embodied, and that isn't necessarily exerted to gain power. I see this shift in language as an act of generative refusal. Another powerful use of language in this quote is Bell Hooks's reference to the lived experience of a particular reality as a privileged standpoint or location. While the word privilege on its own means a special advantage or right possessed by an individual or group, we, in the thick of cancel culture, have weaponized the term as a tool for calling out and shaming. We have narrowed its use to refer only to unearned privilege, or rights or advantages gained by birth or social position. And in the meantime, we have erased the fact that there is an entire category of advantages that are earned through lived experience. Making this distinction helps us see privilege not as inherently good or bad, but rather as something to be mindful of when we make choices about who to listen to and what we believe grants them the credibility to speak to a particular experience. Lastly, Bell Hooks speaks to the passion of experience as encompassing many feelings, particularly suffering. She observes that there is a particular kind of knowledge that comes from suffering, and in doing so, she complicates the experience of suffering. While the historically privileged have looked at the suffering of the historically marginalized largely through the lens of pity, poor them, guilt, I feel uncomfortable that I have what you don't, Superiority, if only they just saved more money or stayed in school or set it in a different tone or insert opportunity afforded by unearned privilege here. And or saviorism, let me save you from your troubles so I can feel good about myself for helping. Hooks's analysis, on the other hand, underscores the expertise that is gained through suffering. She invites us to consider the perspective that they may know more than me because of what they've been through that I haven't. Hooks also points out that the knowledge gained through suffering is expressed through the body. In this sense, part of the resistance to accepting lived experience and passion of experience as legitimate forms of knowledge may be rooted in our internalization of mind supremacy. If we do not see the body as a vast and credible source and conveyor of knowledge, if we limit that capacity to just the mind, we in turn minimize the lived experience that resides in the body. The second quote is by author and community curator Mia Birdsong from her book, How We Show Up. Quote, in a 2003 interview with writer and cultural critic Hilton Els, Toni Morrison rejects the idea that labeling her work as female or black narrows it or limits its reach and accessibility, because being a black woman writer is not a shallow place, but a rich place to write from. It doesn't limit my imagination. It expands it. 
It's richer than being a white male writer because I know more and I've experienced more. Mia goes on to share, This sentiment resonates with my experience of being a black woman. It also applies, to varying degrees, to the experience of being marginalized in general. The most liberatory, evolved, boundary-breaking people I know hold identities that are marginalized in some way. It's people who are barred from entering quote-unquote mainstream society and have to build on the edges who provide visionary, life-affirming examples of what's possible. I'm not romanticizing the suffering, trauma, and bullshit that oppression causes. Nor am I suggesting that everyone who experiences oppression does or should be expected to create beautiful, future-facing alternatives. But people in positions of privilege certainly aren't doing it. The savior volunteerism, the accumulative consumption of wellness experiences, and those treks to Bali and Bhutan to discover purpose and meaning through other people's spiritual practices generally miss the point. I love time spent in the woods or days lying in the sand as opportunities to breathe, reflect, be present, and decompress. But the places we go to to escape the distractions and obligations and stressful busyness of our everyday are not where we build our lives. And it is in the mundane, the hardship, and the realness of life that what we've built is tested and refined. End quote. Mia Birdsong's perspective, for me, reinforces Bell Hooks's insight while also cautioning us in useful ways. In sharing the quote by Toni Morrison about her experience as a Black woman writer, Birdsong underscores the point that having lived experiences of marginalization means that you know more because you've been exposed to more. Echoing bell hooks, Toni Morrison as a Black woman wrote from a more privileged standpoint than a white male counterpart. While it may be hard to accept that within the constraints of the dominant systems, it makes sense that those who have faced the most oppression also carry the potential to be able to envision the most liberatory movements. They will be able to perceive, acutely and uniquely, what liberation feels like because they have the lived experience of knowing what oppression, acutely and uniquely, feels like. That said, Birdsong also cautions us against romanticizing the suffering, to be mindful of how we frame or tell the story of suffering. It is important that we not use lived experience as an excuse to put the burden of transforming harmful systems on those experiencing the most oppression. There is a difference between giving lived experience the credibility it deserves and using it as an excuse to absolve us of the harms that resulted in those experiences of oppression in the first place. The goal isn't to enable more suffering so that it breeds more visionary leaders. This is the kind of break-you-to-build-you thinking that is paternalistic and deeply problematic. Rather, we must be accountable to the harm that continues to be caused by the oppressive systems we've been able to date, while giving those who have experienced the most harm at the hands of these systems the resources that they need to heal enough to be able to envision the liberatory alternatives that address the root causes of harm. There's a big difference. The following reflection prompts are intended to help you work through your own relationship to lived experience, as well as the beliefs you hold around it. 
I invite you to pause after each prompt and note down any immediate responses that emerge before diving deeper into this exploration. When have you seen the idea of lived experience or authority of experience weaponized? In other words, have there been situations where you've seen folks in historically privileged locations say something along the lines of, according to my lived experience, your lived experience can't be true? What does it look like to create environments that value lived experience without weaponizing it? What is your visceral reaction to hearing that someone who has experienced more marginalization than you knows more than you? To hearing that their lived experience puts them in a more privileged location in terms of their authority of experience? If lived experience is a way of knowing that is often expressed through the body, what it knows, what has been deeply inscribed on it through experience, How might we shift our knowledge-gathering practices to be more inclusive and respectful of the knowledge held within and conveyed through our bodies? How do we currently label, judge, and or treat the passion of experience or the passion of remembrance within the fields of research, academia, and society as a whole? Is it something we uplift or minimize? Respect or demean? How does our response to the passion of experience shift depending on who it's coming from? For example, how does it shift depending on whether it comes from a well-dressed person on a TEDx stage versus an underhoused person on the subway? Who we imagine in response to both of these descriptions is also quite indicative of the unconscious biases we carry. (laughs) 